Welcome to Results May Vary. This is a podcast to help you design your life. Tracy and I have worked in the field of design and innovation for over 17 years between us. We've helped sustain a food revolution for Jamie Oliver and redesign the way LA County votes. We've even engaged the most creative minds in science by turning their genetic information into music at the TED conference. Throughout our careers, we always wondered, what if we took this same creative problem-solving process we used to help well-known organizations solve their toughest challenges and applied it to people's lives? Would it work? Would anyone listen to us? And maybe even scarier, what would happen if they did? Results May Vary is a thoughtful experiment to see just what happens when you set out to intentionally design your life. In our last episode, entrepreneurial learner and doer Jenny Jin inspired us with her work at MIT, teaching students how to design their own lives. Today, we introduce you to aging and climate change expert Dr. Mick Smyer and his Graying Green movement, which aims to engage more older adults in taking impactful action on climate change. Among his many accomplishments, Mick is the former provost and a current professor of psychology at Bucknell University. In addition, in his second year sabbatical, he's currently working on Grain Green as a civic innovation fellow at Stanford D School, learning the power of applying design thinking to social activism. And maybe most impressive are his prodigious skills as a washboard player with New Orleans' own rustical quality string band. I wondered if you could share in your own words what you've been up to and what you're interested in around the topic of design. Sure. I'm a psychologist by training and have spent my whole career focused on aging. Particularly in the last two years, I focused on the intersection of aging and climate change, trying to link two global patterns, population aging and climate change. And I'm interested in the design aspects, how to apply human-centered design principles and concepts to accelerate older adults' uh, visibility and value on climate action. And what kind of, what got you interested in this intersection? Because I know that it's not an immediately common one that people are used to hearing about. It's, it's funny because for me, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious. That is, if you look at the world right now, there are two global patterns that are happening. The United States is in a unique position in that we've been able to handle three transitions sequentially, an economic development transition, a demographic transition to an aging society, and the third transition is reaction to and response to climate concern. But there's a lot of the world right now that's trying to deal with all three simultaneously. And here I'm thinking, for example, of Brazil or China. China's a rapidly aging society. It's also trying to move ahead on the economic development front. And it's committed to dealing straightforwardly with, with the climate threat. So it's, it strikes me that it's an interesting time and it's an important time and in the next 10 years are critical on climate action. And they turn out to be an interesting 10 years for the aging of our population as well. Can you give us some like four examples where aging and climate change meet? Sure. The intersection of aging and climate change happens most frequently in three ways. First, uh, older adults as consumers. We know that older adults continue to consume durable goods and expand their carbon footprint through their mid-70s at least. And so there's an opportunity for 
getting that uh, sizable and growing portion of the population to think about their own consumption patterns and model other consumption patterns for the rest of society. Second, older adults could be casualties of climate change. We know that older adults are one of the vulnerable populations that various reports have pointed to recently, vulnerable to the impact of extreme weather events like drought or floods. For example, in my hometown of New Orleans, after Hurricane Katrina, older adults were disproportionately represented in terms of uh, mortality, but also in terms of morbidity and emergency room visits. And third, and, and maybe most importantly, older adults can be seen as a valuable resource as campaigners and uh, people who can be active on the climate front. The world right now has about uh, 1 billion people 60 and over. By mid-century, that figure will be 2 billion. End of the century, it'll be 3 billion people 60 and over. So if we're going to come up with climate solutions uh, that are going to engage broad parts of the population, older adults have to be part of the development of those solutions and the implementation of those solutions. And so what brought you to the world of design? How did you get interested in design thinking? How did you end up uh, doing this fellowship at Stanford? Well, I was on a f another fellowship at Stanford at the Center for Advanced Study in the Behavioral Sciences. And a friend of mine from Babson College, Cheryl Kaiser, said, stop talking to the social scientists and the gerontologists. Those are your, your strengths and your skill sets. Go talk to people in the design school. And her insight was absolutely right on the money because Cheryl understood that the design school would give me a new set of skills and a new set of framing to accelerate my, my process. And what, what was interesting to you about design as a process? Like, did you have any understanding or expectation of it when you first became aware? I had some understanding of it. On the one hand, it seemed very familiar because as a clinical psychologist, the human-centered aspects and starting with the humans you're concerned with, you're starting with the client's perspective, was very familiar, although um, maybe using different terminology in, in clinical or community psychology. On the other hand, there were other habits of thinking that I had to sort of set aside as a social scientist. I'm used to trying to get a sample that represents the general population so that I can generalize to the entire population. Uh, sometimes in design thinking, you may want to uh, interview people at either end of the distribution, the extremes, because you can learn a lot from those extreme users. Well, that's a very different way to think about what the sample means. Sometimes in design thinking, we talk about doing an experiment. In the social sciences, an experiment means that either you control or control for a variety of other factors, and then look at the impact of one factor, for example. Whereas in, in design thinking, you're basically saying, let's take the ecology as it is, let's take the world as it is, and let's go out and do something and see what kind of impact and feedback we get. And so it kind of flips it 180 degrees and says, we know we're not going to control everything, but let's see what happens when we, when we work in that complexity. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense, especially the ability to quantify populations. And that's often a point of resistance where science meets, meets human-centered design. Just taking a step back, I'm curious, what got you into this field overall? And was it, were you led by climate and then came across aging? Or what was the path for you into this space? Well, that's a really good question, Chris. I think uh, I am passionate about climate change and aging, and for me, the lead-in, and I think this is true for most people, 
it was a personal connection. I mentioned earlier that I'm from New Orleans. Going to New Orleans after Katrina, which was not caused by climate change, but we now know that more extreme weather events like Katrina or Hurricane Sandy are frequent and, and they're on the increase with uh, climate change patterns. But seeing the devastation of Hurricane Katrina and going to New Orleans with groups of students to do Katrina rebuilds 10 years after the storm. So I went down seven or eight years in a row with students from Bucknell University. And seeing my hometown reliant on the kindness of strangers to rebuild made the climate connection just palpable for me. And so then I began to ask myself, well, what can I do uh, about climate change? And I realized I'm not a climate scientist, but I am a gerontologist. I know something about aging and, and older adults. And so I thought, well, that's what I can bring into the climate discussion. Are there ways to make older adults' voices heard more effectively on climate change and climate action? And tying that back to design, you know, these are these are big subjects uh, with high volumes of people and climate change is exponentially complex. So you mentioned experiments in the design world. Tell us about where design and big science meets at that intersection of kind of small and low fidelity and enlightened trial and error. I would say I'm in the transition phase of getting used to that, because on the one hand, my aspirations are to try to to help move the needle on the big and complex issues. On the other hand, my capacity, even leveraging others' uh, efforts and support, is pretty modest. So the trick is how do you see the connection? The trick is to see the connection between small-scale, low-fidelity uh, experiments and the larger issues that, that I'm trying to work on. So I think that's that really took um, some getting used to. The flip side, however, is that the bias towards action, the drive to do things out in the world, fail quickly and learn from those failures, means that uh, you're moving ahead pretty quickly in a way that just is not the case with the social science research uh, methodology uh, that I would traditionally have used. Hey Mick, do you want to tell them what you did last week? Yeah, well last week, for example, we had what we call a sprint. So I had three days develop an experiment, put something out in the world and get some feedback on it. So coming out of the earlier work I'd been doing in the, in the D school at Stanford, I decided that I wanted to hear older adults' voices on climate change. And I developed a, web, a Facebook page called Old People Don't Care About Climate Change. It was a, a takeoff on a title from a Funny or Die video. Maybe you've seen it called Old People Don't Care About Climate Change. And really, it was a feasibility study to see, could we get people to post and to respond to this Facebook page? Thinking, And I was thinking of it first as a feasibility study of using social media for that kind of engagement. And secondly, as the sort of bottom rung or entry rung of a ladder of engagement on climate action. Um, so in three days, with the, the help of one of my fellow fellows, Mario Lugai here, and uh, with Tracy's good direction, uh, we were able to launch and get really interesting responses from people. Can you share a couple of those? I'm really curious. Now that you've taken us this far, I can't wait to hear the kind of where it ended up. <laughs> a couple of things happened. One is people were posting on the page, and then that was actually affecting other people who then posted in response, which, you know, is obviously that's what happens. But, for example, 
I'm just looking at the page now. One person posting about her dad, whom she described as, she's not sure he's old because he's 63 and he wouldn't want to be called old, but he's been very much a model of responsiveness on the climate issue, growing a lot of his own food and, and various things. And she went on to talk about how that has influenced her. Another person said, I'm an old person and I sure do care about climate change. I'm not blind to the fact that right now we're experiencing one of the most severe droughts Western North Carolina has ever seen. And I know these extreme weather events are happening everywhere. What kind of earth are we leaving our grandchildren and our children? Yes, we care. And that was in response to uh, somebody else's posting about how little time she has left and wanting to use it, knowing that her, you know, her, she's an older adult and realizes that she has a limited lifespan ahead. You know, it's not unlimited. She wants to use her time, work on the climate issues. It, it reminds me that uh, you know these topics can be heavy. Is there a technique that you've used or have seen used that lighten the mood so that more people come into this conversation? The Facebook page is uh, kind of snarky. That's by, des that's by design. One of the folks that we had take a look at the prototype said, stick with the snark. And, and that's why we started with the funny or die uh, satirical um, video right. As, right. as a kickoff. Freud said humor is a mature defense. So I'm all for humor. I think it's, you, know, you have to keep a sense of humor even as things are difficult. It's important to have that sense of, of snark. But also it's a serious issue. You know, the National Academy of Sciences, when they talk about climate change communication, although they were talking about for, for K through 12 and millennials, I think the lessons apply for any age group. They said keep it short, social, and positive. Short in terms of time frame. Mm -hmm. So don't talk about your, your carbon footprint in 10,000 years because our brains aren't wired to think in those terms. Think about three or four generations. That's about the time frame that we can understand. Social, in terms of connected to people and places that we care about. In fact, that was the starting point that I originally started with in terms of the Facebook page. I was going to ask people to, to talk about a place that they care about. Really emerged more into sort of a response to, this, to the satire to try to get older adults to express their, their strong feelings. And, and a, lot of, a lot of times it does link to specific places. But people or, pla people or places, a personal connection like my connection to New Orleans is often important. But the third part is really important, and that is positive. Try to focus not only on what's happening, but what are the things that we can do in response to climate change? That's part of what I'm trying to work on now in the D-Schools. How do we frame realistic actions in the face of some very, very difficult challenges? find design to be, it kind of looks at these challenges, uh, it tends to look at them more optimistically and looks to get inspired to action. Have, have you found that with design? And if so, what have you seen out there that really, maybe from another field or in this field, really inspires you around like, wow, more like that? You know, if we can keep that up, we will see the kind of change we all wish we could see. There is built-in assumption in the design process that you can make a change and that you can have an impact. And climate is one of those areas where that's pretty challenging. On the other hand, I think the design process assumes you can have some impact and that small impacts can eventually affect 
and leverage the larger issues. And in a way, that's sort of synonymous with what many older adults uh, feel. As one of the people said on the Facebook page, I'm committed to being an example of how important climate change is to the future of life on Earth with whatever time I have left. Folks uh, at a certain point in life, say 65, 70, 75, know that they're not going to be around for many of the harsher impacts of climate change. But that doesn't mean they're saying, oh, and therefore, I don't have to worry about it. So I think the uh, underlying optimism of, uh, of design principles and thinking and approaches resonates with older adults who say, look, I'm realistic, but I'm also going to get out there and try to do some things. You know, climate change is something that we have helped inspire to pick up the pace. Uh, so if we've created climate change by design that was unintentional, then I would imagine that we could, we could undo the effects of it by intentionally designing our way out of it. The reason I'm reluctant, I've spent a lot of time with climate scientists and reading the reports and, you know, even looking at the recent National Geographic special with Leonardo DiCaprio. I mean, we are in very, very difficult situations, which doesn't mean that we can't do things about it and can't turn things around. We can, but the timing is really important. And that's in part why I think this next 10 years are really important, both for climate, but also for the aging of the population. And by that, I mean, the next 10 years, the boomers are coming into a time when they're the early leading edge of the boomers are already there and the trailing edge will get there. A time when they have time, energy, and resources to focus on issues that will give them meaning and purpose in later life. Well, that happens to be the same 10 years where we really have to get action on climate change. So I think that any political or civic leader who's going to make a local, regional, or national effort on climate change has to bring along older adults as a, as a large part of that coalition. I like how when we first met, you were talking about that age time period in someone's life as sort of a second college experience, or I forget, you said it much more eloquently. There is a, a phase in later life that's like being in your 20s again. And by that, I mean, oftentimes you're faced with issues like, where am I going to live? Where are my friends going to be? And how am I going to pay for it? And if you're the parent of a 20-something, those are pretty familiar issues. Only now, you come at that in, your, in later life with a set of experiences and a set of priorities. And so it's a very interesting mix. And we also don't have great models for this phase of life. I sometimes call today's older adults the, the Lewis and Clark scouts of aging. You know, when Lewis and Clark set out, they would send a scout back to tell Jefferson what they were finding. And in many ways, today's older adults and the, and the folks who preceded us are, are really learning what the landscape of old age can and, and, and could be. And we're giving reports back to those who follow us. I think that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about exposure, just the idea of, you know, when you are exposed to new ideas or new insights or like you're talking about having people say, this is what it's like to be this age, that allows you the freedom then to make bigger, bolder decisions and choices just because you know that they're out there to be made. Well, that, I think you're right, Tracy. And there's also a clear sense of uh, a changing sense of time. A psychologist here at Stanford, Laura Carson, 
has written eloquently about the way in which our sense of time changes with age. So that somewhere in your mid-50s or so, maybe a little later, maybe a little earlier for some people, you get a, your time sense shifts to a sense of time left to live. That pretty quickly focuses you on, so what's important to me? Who are the people who are important to me? What are the activities are, that are important to me? What are my priorities if I have limited time left to live? Even if that limit is 15, 20, 25 years. Mick, you're, what you're doing for me right now is just shattering a lot of myths. Are there other common myths about aging and or climate or the combination that you commonly hear that you find to be quite contrary? Well, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of myths about aging. In fact, Laura Carsonson has a book called The Long Bright Future that's framed around uh, basic myths of aging. Things like most old people are miserable. Well, in fact, no, happiness and life satisfaction peaks late in life. Once you're relieved from the everyday burdens and stresses of childcare and raising a family and work family balance in the way that is, is pretty intense in, in uh, early and midlife. Boy, life's pretty darn good, you know? So I think the, the other thing is that we tend to paint all older people with one brush. And so there's a myth of uniformity about old age, but in fact, variability increases with age. And if you take a group of seven-year-olds and a group of 77-year-olds, the 77-year-olds are going to be more different from each other than the seven-year-olds are. And why so is that? It's the lifetime impact of both environmental and genetic influences and experiences. You know, the, the experiences have been fairly common up through age seven, let's say. But by 77, some people have smoked, some people haven't. Some people have had a lot to drink, some people haven't. Some people are overweight, some people are physically fit. Some people have had education through 12 years, some dropped out of high school. Some people worked in uh, hazardous uh, uh, occupations, others didn't. And so the cumulative effect of all of those individual decisions and, and opportunities lead to very different paths and outcomes in late life. What are common myths that are need to be debunked? I think this is, you've just completely shattered, I think, what most people think about aging. So why don't we just go ahead and do that for climate change while we're at it? I mean, the, the big myth that I struggle with sometimes is that older people don't care about climate change. But in fact, the data are pretty clear that older adults do care. The data, and by this I mean social science surveys, for example, the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication reports data that suggests that uh, boomers are as concerned, if not more so, about climate change uh, as millennials. So I think there's a myth that, oh, older people are just the greedy geezers. I've got mine, out and it's an after-I-die I problem. That's just not the case. And the reason for that is pretty simple, because we're wired to think about future generations. You know, from an evolutionary perspective, we're wired to think about, is our gene pool going to survive? So, but even beyond that, you know, psychologically, we're wired to think about the impact of, of things like climate change on future generations. And so older adults do care about climate change. And yet, most climate scientists and most climate communicators have overlooked this important and growing resource. When I talk to them about older adults, and climate change and aging, I usually get a one-word answer from scientists, and that word is, huh. 
And, and I now understand that, huh, is science speak for, that's not a crazy idea. I just never thought of it. And it's that over, oversight that I'm trying to remedy. And I really love that because I, I was telling Mick, like, when those things happen, that is when you have great opportunity for design, right? Yes. Like, it hasn't been explored yet. Right. You're absolutely right, Tracy. And, and then what I find uh, with various groups is once I get beyond the huh, and the first time I got huh, I was really worried, but now I'm ready for it. But once I get beyond that, then I find most folks are willing to play with the ideas and say, huh, well, what would it look like or how might we engage older adults? And it's interesting, even it, the, the flip side happens, too, with, with uh, folks who work in aging uh, arenas, getting them to think about climate change because I'm starting to get the huh response from them. In other words, it's not just bringing aging to climate change, but bringing climate change to aging. I still get a huh. What if, what, well, what if we looked at it this way? And I think you're right. That's where the, the design process really kicks in. On that note, I want. I wonder, since you're in this new phase of trying design out and applying it to your many years of expertise in aging, could you talk a little bit about how you think about design or how you talk to other people about it? What it, what the process is. One of the things that we, you know, it's like we're always trying to figure out new ways to talk to more people about it and make it relevant to them. And so I'm just curious, since you're in this really, you're in a sweet spot right now, you're, you know what it is, you're trying it out for yourself and you're applying it to something that you've been looking at in a completely different lens. Sure. But I, you know, it's like asking a pilot who's, is <laughs> certified for visual flight rules and fixed gear to talk about landing a 737. Well, you know, somebody asked me, well, what is human-centered design? And the bumper sticker I came up with was, start with humans, end with solutions. Nice. And, and for me, that's a good summary. Starting with humans is really important. So going out, talking to the folks that you're trying to engage is really the critical first step. And being open to learning things that you didn't, you didn't even know you didn't know. And it's that openness and the, the deep empathy work that I think really is important as a first step. Were there and any then, experiences that you had in that empathy building phase that have stood out to you? Like anything that really threw you for a loop or, or changed your perspective? What? Yes. I was doing in one of our experiment or uh, phases, given a uh, woman I was interviewing, um, a card sort in a, with a lot of different individual actions you can take on climate change. And she sorted them into piles of her own making. And there was this large pile, and I said to her, what's that pile? She said, well, you know, I rent. And those are all things that my landlord can take care of, but I can't. I can't control those. So my next interview happened to be with a woman who was a landlady, not the same, not the landlady of the first person, but a person who had a rental property. So I gave her the card sort, and she had a big pile, and I said, well, what is that pile? She said, well, those are all things that my tenant can do, but I can't control those. <laughs> and, what, and what struck me was that this was a great metaphor for the problem of the commons. Nobody feels like they can control, they have control over a lot of the actions that make a difference. There are solutions to that. In, in this case, I, you know, I prototyped a little green lease and tried that out with another landlady who was very interested in it, not for the environmental reasons, but for the economic reasons. She could 
probably say to people, yes, the rent is high, but look, I've invested in, and these actions are going to save you on utilities and, and, and the like. But, but the point is, the first two people I talked to both felt relatively powerless to make straightforward, simple changes because they felt somebody else was responsible for that. That's the kind of conclusion I would not have come to other than sitting down, talking to people, giving them time, and, and taking my lead from them. What do you wish the design crowd could know about the scientific crowd? or Because or, you, you mm. as Tracy pointed out, you kind of straddle both worlds. And what do you right. kind of wish for the designers out of your prior, right. your prior I'm, world? I'm, right. I'm the design whisperer to the social sciences and the social exactly. science whisperer to the design crew. I think it's both and, not either or. In other words, I think there are some that you can take from social science findings and then use those as a starting point or as a kickoff point for a deeper dive using design processes. For example, the first part of my project, I spent with folks at the Yale uh, Project on Climate Change Communication and looking at their survey data, helping them reanalyze it and reframe it from a generational perspective. That allowed me to have the insight that, well, yeah, older people do care about climate change. So now, armed with that insight from, from quantitative data, I can then do a deep dive in empathy work and elsewhere and say, well, how do they share and how, how can we make that manifest? So I think there's, I think both and, and I think the work of both sides is enriched by being able to sample from the other side. Hallelujah. I agree. <laughs> it sounds easy. But it seems to me it requires respect for the methods and insights from both sides. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's tricky, I think. Well, I think that goes back then again to what we were well, what I was talking about with exposure, right? It's like without being exposed to and understanding the other side, it's hard to have that respect for. Historically, we've worked in separate fields, and so it hasn't really come together. As we kind of wrap up, I wonder, for the audience that's listening, what are some things that they could be thinking about or doing uh, around the topic of climate change and thinking about aging either for themselves or people in their lives? How, what are some steps that they could take or ways to look at things a little bit differently? Well, I think the first step I would take is to realize that the older adults in your environment, the older adults around you, are the keepers of living climate memory. They remember what the climate was like in your local area or in their local area 50, 60, 70 years before this. They can tell you what the changes are like because they've seen them. And so one first thing that anybody can do is ask older people that you know, what changes have you seen in the area that you live in? whether it's the, the plant life or the water, whatever it is, mm -hmm. precipitation. So part of what I'm saying is take advantage of that living climate memory. The second thing I would, I would urge people to do is to think about their local and regional area and ask themselves, what am I doing to uh, lessen my impact, the climate in my local and regional area? We all have an impact, and there are uh, simple things we can do, whether it's do more walking, drive less, recycle, all those sorts of things. 
But then there are regional responses that require collective action. And some people are uncomfortable with that. But increasingly, mayors and governors are taking the lead to make sure that the regional uh, solutions are uh, looked at and pursued. And that requires political leadership, but also political support. Mm -hmm. So if you're already doing individual things, think about, well, what can I do collectively? What, what's the next step for me if I'm doing most of the things that I could do individually? Maybe the next step for you is to get involved collectively, whether it's signing a petition or joining a climate march or going to city council meeting that's considering the sustainability plan for your region. So I think those are things that each of us could do and in ways in which each of us could get involved. But the main thing I think we need to do is to remember that older adults are a resource for our families, for our communities, and for our regions. They not only are living memory of what climate change has occurred in their lifetimes, but they also are visionaries of how we might respond and what kind of actions we could take to make sure we get ahead of the, the climate dilemmas that we're now facing. Continued success as you explore this through the lens of design thinking. I know that one of the things that you're looking to answer is what are those steps and how, how do people sort of ladder up uh, in engagement and be more committed and, and have impact at a larger scale? So we'll look forward to hearing more about that when, when you've gotten further. Sounds good. Of course, I have a great advisor. So uh, Thanks a lot. The best. Okay. <laughs> All, right. All right. Thanks, Vic. Yeah, that was fascinating. I think the, the intersection of aging and climate change alone is an unlikely pairing. Ageism in the, in the country, we didn't get to talk much about that. I'd love to talk to him more about where that's heading, if that's trending up, down, or backwards, or forwards. But uh, applying design thinking and merging that with his scientific background is, seems like an extremely potent place to, to be. Yeah. So he's a fascinating, fascinating guy. And he's, I mean, what I, I really felt honored having a chance to work with him on this. He is so open and and willing to just jump in and try things. I mean, he, he's kind of being modest about his, you know, experiments and things that he's tried, but he tries so much, different experiments every week. I feel like oftentimes when people first learn about design thinking and they're unsure, they hold back uh, and he doesn't at all. So it's it's really great to see. And then also, just thinking about, you know, how he is trying to pull together something that allows people to move past that change your light bulb stage, I think yes. would be really important because I think people do those little small steps. They feel like they don't necessarily have a large impact in the world and they get disenfranchised and move on. So I'm really fascinated to see kind of how this progresses throughout the rest of the year. Yeah, I find it so inspiring to think about, you know, you kind of get your 20-something self back. Yeah. And I had never thought about that time quite that way before. And it makes so much sense because you, you, you are still valuable. You still have energy. You still have passion. Um, and you get time back. And so that's, that's a, one of the greatest values in, in the world is to have the time to actually attack some of these challenges. So I found that really inspiring just to have people with time back. Yeah, I did too. I was like, oh, great. I get to have my college, my college years back, but I don't have the responsibility of taking classes. 
<laughs> well, thank you, Tracy. This was an awesome show. Yeah. Thanks for setting up the time with of Mick. Course. And yeah, look forward to the next one. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. Our dream is to build a community of people who can create and take advantage of any opportunity that interests them. To do this really well, we'd love for you to participate. Try out and share back your own life design experiments. Or if you've already got a great story of how you've designed your life, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page or at resultsmayvarypodcast.com. Our website is also where you'll find show notes and links to all of the things we mentioned in the episode. And if you would be so kind, subscribe to the show and share your favorite episodes with friends. That'll let even more people start designing their own lives. A big thanks to the folks who help us make the show possible. Composer and filmmaker H.P. Mendoza for the Results May Vary theme music. Graphic designer Anessa Bramer for our logo. David Glazier for sound mixing. And team podcast for editing. And of course, thank you so much for listening to... Results May Vary!